The Cloak by Nikolai Gogol, Part 3 As there was nothing else to be done, Akaki Akakievich decided to go to the prominent personage. What was the exact official position of the prominent personage remains unknown to this day. The reader must know that the prominent personage had but recently become a prominent personage, having up to that time been only an insignificant person. Moreover, his present position was not considered prominent in comparison with others still more so. But there is always a circle of people to whom what is insignificant in the eyes of others is important enough. Moreover, he strove to increase his importance by sundry devices. For instance, he managed to have the inferior officials meet him on the staircase when he entered upon his service. No one was to presume to come directly to him, but the strictest etiquette must be observed. The collegiate recorder must make a report to the government secretary, the government secretary to the titular counselor, or whatever other man was proper, and all business must come before him in this manner. In holy Russia, all is thus contaminated with the love of imitation. Every man imitates and copies his superior. They even say that a certain titular counselor, when promoted to the head of some small separate office, immediately partitioned off a private room for himself, called it the audience chamber, and posted at the door a lackey with red collar and braid, who grasped the handle of the door and opened to all comers, though the audience chamber would hardly hold an ordinary writing table. The manners and customs of the prominent personage were grand and imposing, but rather exaggerated. The main foundation of his system was strictness. Strictness, strictness, and always strictness, he generally said, and at the last word he looked significantly into the face of the person to whom he spoke. But there was no necessity for this, for the half-score of subordinates who formed the entire force of the office were properly afraid. On catching sight of him afar off, they left their work and waited, drawn up in line, until he had passed through the room. His ordinary converse with his inferiors smacked of sternness, and consisted chiefly of three phrases. How dare you? Do you know whom you are speaking to? Do you realize who is standing before you? Otherwise, he was a very kind-hearted man, good to his comrades, and ready to oblige. But the rank of general threw him completely off his balance. On receiving anyone of that rank, he became confused, lost his way, as it were, and never knew what to do. If he chanced to be amongst his equals, he was still a very nice kind of man, a very good fellow in many respects, and not stupid, but the very moment that he found himself in the society of people but one rank lower than himself, he became silent. And his situation aroused sympathy the more so, as he felt himself that he might have been making an incomparably better use of his time. In his eyes, there was sometimes visible a desire to join some interesting conversation or group, but he was kept back by the thought, would it not be a very great condescension on his part? Would it not be familiar? And would he not thereby lose his importance? And in consequence of such reflections, he always remained in the same dumb state, uttering from time to time a few monosyllabic sounds, and thereby earning the name of the most wearisome of men. To this prominent personage, Akaki Akakievich presented himself, and this at the most unfavorable time for himself, though opportune for the prominent personage. 
The prominent personage was in his cabinet, conversing very gaily with an old acquaintance and companion of his childhood, whom he had not seen for several years, and who had just arrived, when it was announced to him that a person named Bashmachkin had come. He asked abruptly, "'Who is he?' "'Some official,' he was informed. "'Ah, he can wait. This is no time for him to call,' said the important man." It must be remarked here that the important man lied outrageously. He had said all he had to say to his friend long before, and the conversation had been interspersed for some time with very long pauses, during which they merely slapped each other on the leg and said, "'You think so, Ivan Abramovich?' "'Just so, Stepan Varlamovich.' Nevertheless, he ordered that the official should be kept waiting, in order to show his friend— a man who had not been in the service for a long time, but had lived at home in the country, how long officials had to wait in his ante-room. At length, having talked himself completely out, and more than that, having had his fill of pauses, and smoked a cigar in a very comfortable armchair with reclining back, he suddenly seemed to recollect, and said to the secretary, who stood by the door with papers of reports, "'So it seems that there is an official waiting to see me.' Tell him that he may come in. On perceiving Akaki Akakievich's modest mien and his worn uniform, he turned abruptly to him and said, What do you want? in a curt, hard voice, which he had practiced in his room in private and before the looking glass for a whole week before being raised to his present rank. Akaki Akakievich, who was already imbued with a due amount of fear, became somewhat confused, and as well as his tongue would permit, explained, with a rather more frequent addition than usual of the word that, that his cloak was quite new and had been stolen in the most inhuman manner that he had applied to him in order that he might, in some way, by his intermediation, that he might enter into correspondence with the chief of police and find the cloak. For some inexplicable reason, this conduct seemed familiar to the prominent personage. "'What, my dear sir?' he said abruptly. Are you not acquainted with etiquette? To whom have you come? Don't you know how such matters are managed? You should first have presented a petition to the office. It would have gone to the head of the department, then to the chief of the division, then it would have been handed over to the secretary, and the secretary would have given it to me. But, Your Excellency, said Akaki Akakievich, trying to collect his small handful of wits, and conscious at the same time that he was perspiring terribly. I, your excellency, presume to trouble you because secretaries are an untrustworthy race. What? 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 said the important personage. Where did you get such courage? Where did you get such ideas? What impudence towards their chiefs and superiors has spread among the young generation? The prominent personage apparently had not observed that Akaki Akakievich was already in the neighborhood of fifty. If he could be called a young man, it must have been in comparison with someone who was seventy. "'Do you know to whom you are speaking? Do you realize who is standing before you? Do you realize it? Do you realize it, I ask you?' Then he stamped his foot and raised his voice to such a pitch that it would have frightened even a different man from Akaki Akakievich. Akaki Akakievich's senses failed him. He staggered, trembled in every limb, and if the porters had not run in to support him, would have fallen to the floor. They carried him out insensible. 
but the prominent personage, gratified that the effect should have surpassed his expectations, and quite intoxicated with the thought that his word could even deprive a man of his senses, glanced sideways at his friend in order to see how he looked upon this, and perceived, not without satisfaction, that his friend was in a most uneasy frame of mind, and even beginning on his part to feel a trifle frightened. Akaki Akakievich could not remember how he descended the stairs and got into the street. He felt neither his hands nor feet. Never in his life had he been so raided by any high official, let alone a strange one. He went staggering on through the snowstorm, which was blowing in the streets, with his mouth wide open. The wind, in St. Petersburg fashion, darted upon him from all quarters and down every cross street. In a twinkling, it had blown a quinsy into his throat, and he reached home unable to utter a word. His throat was swollen, and he lay down on his bed. So powerful is sometimes a good scolding. The next day, a violent fever developed. Thanks to the generous assistance of the St. Petersburg climate, the malady progressed more rapidly than could have been expected, and when the doctor arrived, he found, on feeling the sick man's pulse, that there was nothing to be done, except to prescribe a poultice, so that the patient might not be left entirely without the beneficent aid of medicine. But at the same time, he predicted his end in thirty-six hours. After this, he turned to the landlady and said, "'And as for you, don't waste your time on him.' Order his pine coffin now, for an oak one will be too expensive for him. Did Akaki Akakievich hear these fatal words? And if he heard them, did they produce any overwhelming effect upon him? Did he lament the bitterness of his life? We know not, for he continued in a delirious condition. Visions incessantly appeared to him, each stranger than the other. Now he saw Petrovich, and ordered him to make a cloak with some traps for robbers who seemed to him to be always under the bed. And he cried every moment to the landlady to pull one of them from under his coverlet. Then he inquired why his old mantle hung before him when he had a new cloak. Next, he fancied that he was standing before the prominent person, listening to a thorough setting down, and saying, "'Forgive me, Your Excellency!' But at last he began to curse— uttering the most horrible words, so that his aged landlady crossed herself, never in her life having heard anything of the kind from him, and more so, as these words followed directly after the words, Your Excellency. Later on he talked utter nonsense, of which nothing could be made, all that was evident being that these incoherent words and thoughts hovered ever above one thing, his cloak. At length, poor Akaki Akakievich breathed his last. They sealed up neither his room nor his effects, because in the first place there were no heirs, and in the second there was very little to inherit beyond a bundle of goose quills, a choir of white official paper, three pairs of socks, two or three buttons which had burst off his trousers, and the mantle already known to the reader. To whom all this fell, God knows." I confess that the person who told me this tale took no interest in the matter. They carried Akaki Akakievich out and buried him. And St. Petersburg was left without Akaki Akakievich, as though he had never lived there. A being disappeared, who was protected by none, dear to none, interesting to none, 
and who never even attracted to himself the attention of those students of human nature who omit no opportunity of thrusting a pin through a common fly and examining it under the microscope. A being who bore meekly the jibes of the department and went to his grave without having done one unusual deed, but to whom, nevertheless, at the close of his life, appeared a bright visitant in the form of a cloak which momentarily cheered his poor life, and upon him thereafter an intolerable misfortune descended, just as it descends upon the heads of the mighty of this world. Several days after his death, the porter was sent from the department to his lodgings, with an order for him to present himself there immediately, the chief commanding it. But the porter had to return unsuccessful, with the answer that he could not come, and to the question, Why? replied, Well, because he is dead. He was buried four days ago. In this manner did they hear of Akaki Akakievich's death at the department. And the next day a new official sat in his place, with a handwriting by no means so upright, but more inclined and slanting. But who could have imagined that this was not really the end of Akaki Akakievich, that he was destined to raise a commotion after death, as if in compensation for his utterly insignificant life? But so it happened, and our poor story unexpectedly gains a fantastic ending. A rumor suddenly spread through St. Petersburg that a dead man had taken to appearing on the Kalinkin Bridge and its vicinity at night in the form of an official seeking a stolen cloak, and that, under the pretext of its being the stolen cloak, he dragged, without regard to rank or calling, everyone's cloak from his shoulders, be it catskin, beaver, fox, bear, sable, in a word, every sort of fur and skin which men adopted for their covering. One of the department officials saw the dead man with his own eyes, and immediately recognized him as Akaki Akakievich. This, however, inspired him with such terror that he ran off with all his might, and therefore did not scan the dead man closely, but only saw how the latter threatened him from afar with his finger. Constant complaints poured in from all quarters that the backs and shoulders not only of titular but even of court councillors were exposed to the danger of a cold on account of the frequent dragging off of their cloaks. Arrangements were made by the police to catch the corpse, alive or dead, at any cost, and punish him as an example to others in the most severe manner. In this they nearly succeeded, for a watchman on guard in Karinchkin Lane caught the corpse by the collar on the very scene of his evil deeds when attempting to pull off the frieze cloak of a retired musician. Having seized him by the collar, he summoned with a shout two of his comrades, whom he enjoined to hold him fast, while he himself felt for a moment in his boot in order to draw out his snuff-box and refresh his frozen nose. But the snuff was of a sort which even a corpse could not endure. The watchman, having closed his right nostril with his finger— had no sooner succeeded in holding half a handful up to the left than the corpse sneezed so violently that he completely filled the eyes of all three. While they raised their hands to wipe them, the dead man vanished completely, so that they positively did not know whether they had actually had him in their grip at all. Thereafter, the watchmen conceived such a terror of dead men that they were afraid even to seize the living, and only screamed from a distance, "'Hey there! Go your way!' So the dead official began to appear beyond the Kalinkin Bridge, 
causing no little terror to all timid people. But we have totally neglected that certain prominent personage who may really be considered as the cause of the fantastic turn taken by this true history. First of all, justice compels us to say that after the departure of poor, annihilated Akaki Akakievich, he felt something like remorse. Suffering was unpleasant to him, for his heart was accessible to many good impulses, in spite of the fact that his rank often prevented his showing his true self. As soon as his friend had left his cabinet, he began to think about poor Akaki Akakievich. And from that day forth, poor Akaki Akakievich, who could not bear up under an official reprimand, recurred to his mind almost every day. The thought troubled him to such an extent that a week later he even resolved to send an official to him to learn whether he really could assist him. And when it was reported to him that Akaki Akakievich had died suddenly of fever, he was startled, hearkened to the reproaches of his conscience, and was out of sorts for the whole day. Wishing to divert his mind in some way and drive away the disagreeable impression, he set out that evening for one of his friend's houses, where he found quite a large party assembled. What was better, nearly everyone was of the same rank as himself, so that he need not feel in the least constrained. This had a marvelous effect upon his mental state. He grew expansive, made himself agreeable in conversation. In short, he passed a delightful evening. After supper, he drank a couple of glasses of champagne. Not a bad recipe for cheerfulness, as everyone knows. The champagne inclined him to various adventures, and he determined not to return home, but to go and see a certain well-known lady of German extraction, Karolina Ivanovna, a lady, it appears, with whom he was on a very friendly footing. It must be mentioned that the prominent personage was no longer a young man, but a good husband and respected father of a family. Two sons, one of whom was already in the service, and a good-looking sixteen-year-old daughter with a slightly arched but pretty little nose, came every morning to kiss his hand and say, Bonjour, Papa. His wife, a still fresh and good-looking woman, first gave him her hand to kiss, and then, reversing the procedure, kissed his. But the prominent personage, though perfectly satisfied in his domestic relations, considered it stylish to have a friend in another quarter of the city. This friend was scarcely prettier or younger than his wife. But there are such puzzles in the world, and it is not our place to judge them. So, the important personage descended the stairs, stepped into his sledge, said to the coachman, to Karolina Ivanovna's, and, wrapping himself luxuriously in his warm cloak, found himself in that delightful frame of mind than which a Russian can conceive nothing better, namely, when you think of nothing yourself, yet when the thoughts creep into your mind of their own accord, each more agreeable than the other, giving you no trouble either to drive them away or seek them. Fully satisfied, he recalled all the gay features of the evening just past, and all the mots which had made the little circle laugh. Many of them he repeated in a low voice, and found them quite as funny as before, so it is not surprising that he should laugh heartily at them. Occasionally, however, he was interrupted by gusts of wind, which, coming suddenly, God knows whence or why, cut his face, drove masses of snow into it, filled out his cloak-collar like a sail, or suddenly blew it over his head with supernatural force, 
and thus caused him constant trouble to disentangle himself. Suddenly, the important personage felt someone clutch him firmly by the collar. Turning round, he perceived a man of short stature in an old, worn uniform, and recognized, not without terror, Akaki Akakievich. The official's face was white as snow and looked just like a corpse's. But the horror of the important personage transcended all bounds when he saw the dead man's mouth open and heard it utter the following remarks while it breathed upon him the terrible odor of the grave. Ah, here you are at last. I have you, that, by the collar. I need your cloak. You took no trouble about mine, but reprimanded me. So now give up your own. The pallid, prominent personage almost died of fright. Brave as he was in the office, and in the presence of inferiors generally, and although, at the sight of his manly form and appearance, everyone said, Ugh, how much character he has! At this crisis, he, like many possessed of an heroic exterior, experienced such terror that not without cause he began to fear an attack of illness. He flung his cloak hastily from his shoulders and shouted to his coachman in an unnatural voice, "'Home! At full speed!' The coachman, hearing the tone which is generally employed at critical moments, and even accompanied by something much more tangible, drew his head down between his shoulders in case of an emergency, flourished his whip, and flew on like an arrow. In a little more than six minutes, the prominent personage was at the entrance of his own house." Pale, thoroughly scared, and cloakless, he went home instead of to Karolina Ivanovna's, reached his room somehow or other, and passed the night in the direst distress. So that, the next morning over their tea, his daughter said, "'You are very pale today, Papa.' But Papa remained silent, and said not a word to anyone of what had happened to him, where he had been, or where he had intended to go." This occurrence made a deep impression upon him. He even began to say, "'How dare you! Do you realize who is standing before you?' less frequently to the under-officials, and if he did utter the words, it was only after first having learned the bearings of the matter. But the most noteworthy point was that from that day forward the apparition of the dead official ceased to be seen. Evidently the prominent personage's cloak just fitted his shoulders.' At all events, no more instances of his dragging cloaks from people's shoulders were heard of. But many active and solicitous persons could by no means reassure themselves, and asserted that the dead official still showed himself in distant parts of the city. In fact, one watchman in Coloman saw with his own eyes the apparition come from behind a house. But the watchman was not a strong man, so he was afraid to arrest him, and followed him in the dark until, at length, the apparition looked round, paused, and inquired, "'What do you want?' at the same time showing such a fist as is never seen on living men. The watchman said, "'Nothing,' and turned back instantly. But the apparition was much too tall, wore huge mustaches, and, directing its steps apparently toward the Abakov Bridge, disappeared in the darkness of the night.' 